Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman after a very eventful Week 7 in college football. Bruce, a little bit later on, we're going to have a special guest, Trent Dilfer, who everybody knows from uh, when he was on ESPN every week, or certainly when he was an NFL quarterback, but we want to talk to him. He's, He's Mr. Elite 11, and we want to talk to him about some of the great college quarterbacks out there who he knows very well. Um, but first, I think we need to talk about some uh, some significant developments for over the weekend, including one that caused me to change my number one team in the top 10 this week. For the first time, when I went to do my top 10 Saturday night, it actually required, required quite a bit of brain power. Um, the basic question was, after LSU's 42-28 win over Florida, do I move them to number one in the country because of their resume? Or do I stick with the, well, here's who I think has been the best team so far, which to that point had been Ohio State. Um, I did move LSU to number one in the country. I think they deserve it after the wins over both Texas and Florida. You don't have a vote or you don't have a ballot of any kind, but if you were doing one, would you have done the same or no? I would have. Um, look, we're going to get to see, my, my Fox Sports crew is going to get to see Ohio State Friday night against your alma mater in Evanston. I wouldn't read uh, too much into that one. No, no. But look, I think what I think we're getting at right now is Ohio State has not faced anybody, through no fault of their own, have not faced anybody quite at the at least ranking level as what LSU has seen, both at Texas, which was on the road, certainly. And look, Texas now has two losses, uh, again, or against Florida. Um, and I think those, you know, fortunately, this is the great part about our sport, at least in this case, is this stuff, a lot, is, this part of it is all going to sort itself out. Uh, LSU's still got to play Auburn, and then they're going to have to go to Tuscaloosa. And somewhere in there, you know, they play some other good teams, too, and and eventually, if, if they keep winning, they're going to go to the playoff. And so I think that, you know, what creates an interesting situation now, though, is LSU, is, as rough as their schedule is with some heavyweight teams on it, if they beat Auburn, you can look at it and say, even if they don't beat Alabama, which has been a huge issue for LSU for really most of this decade, they'd be sitting there at 11-1, and one if they can win at Mississippi State, which they should, and, and beat Texas A&M, I mean, it's, it's not a stretch to think they're in really good position to be in a playoff spot with the wins they already have. And if again, if they beat Auburn, I mean, that's... And it, we're just at the midseason point right now. Is that crazy to think that? Yeah, I mean, that Texas win becomes a, a pretty big... Now, it would have been really big if Texas had beaten Oklahoma, but even the other way around... If by chance Oklahoma slips up at some point, but still wins the Big Twelve, 
and you know you're comparing those two one loss teams and they both have the wins over Texas but then what have the other teams done on top of that I mean I'm looking at Oklahoma's schedule the rest of the way they may play one ranked team the rest of the way whether that's Baylor or Iowa State but I don't think it's gonna be much more than that so then they would probably play a ranked team in the Big 12 title game but before we start fantasizing about crazy playoff scenarios I just want to take a moment to uh, first of all you were the very first one on the Joe Brady bandwagon right I mean no no disputing that you you were telling us all about him way back in February or March when you went went down there in the spring you wrote a big profile on him but I don't think even you right would have seen LSU halfway through the season leading the country averaging over 51 points a game they just played an SEC game the other night as I wrote in forward pass they've that LSU in its history has played over 700 SEC games and that night the other night was the most yards per play they've ever averaged in a football game 10.6 yards per play and they weren't playing Vandy right they were playing Florida who has some really good players on their defense granted two of the best ones were hurt um this is this is remarkable. Joe Burrow, a year ago at this time, was like a 52% passer who, okay, he's an upgrade over who they have, but he's still kind of a game manager. He's the Heisman front runner right now, and I, and I don't think there's even any question about that, although obviously it's not like Tua and Jalen Hurts are slouches. Uh, I, I'm trying to think in, the, in my time covering the sport whether I've seen such a dramatic shift from one year, change from one year to the next. I can't think of it either. I mean, look, and you mentioned uh, Florida was down, you know, one of their best D linemen, and then another one got hurt late in the game. I mean, LSU was also missing one of their best receivers, Terrace Marshall, in that game. And they didn't miss a beat at all. I mean, you look at the way they run the football. I mean, I think this is a big, certainly a big, big, big hat tip to Joe Brady for what he's done there, not just with the system and the pass game with Joe Burrow, but with those receivers. LSU had problems with the receivers dropping balls before. I mean, to see how far they've come, Jamar Chase is probably the breakout star this year, in the at least in the SEC, and they're playing with a lot of confidence. What's different to me, and I, you know, I feel like you gave me a hard time on this part where me, you, and Andy had that text exchange previews, and there was something I said in there which, look, I, obviously I've spent a lot of time around LSU and I know that staff pretty well. But one of the things that came up on my visit in the spring was when you see how Clemson attacks Alabama and how aggressive Brent Venables can be as a defensive play caller, I think what's interesting there is Clemson knows, hey, we're going to probably be able to score on these guys. We are going to score on these guys. Whereas whenever LSU has played them, it's almost like, and there was a game when two, uh, when Jalen Hurts was the starting quarterback his freshman year, they went toe-to-toe with Alabama into the fourth quarter, and then Jalen Hurts hit a big run, and then that was it. It was a close game, but they still won. But it was almost like they had no margin for error because there was just no real true confidence in their offense. That has completely changed now. And I'm not saying they're going to go in in Tuscaloosa and boat race Alabama. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll be very fortunate if they can win that game. But it is the biggest change I can remember, as you said, from a team that was going, by some people's accounts, from a Stone Age offense to right now. 
their offense is as dynamic as anything we've seen in college football. I saw uh, our friend Chris Dufresne, longtime sports writer for the LA Times, now uh, runs his own site. Uh, he uh, made the point that LSU and Oregon, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, have completely reversed themselves. If you remember, they played a, a really high-profile early season game in 2011, opening game. And at that time, Oregon was the, the, the splashy, blur offense team, and LSU was the defensive juggernaut that started Jarrett Lee at quarterback. And uh, here we are, 2019, LSU is averaging 52 points a game, and Oregon is allowing like eight points a game. <laughs> They've held their last four opponents under 10 points. Um, the other thing I think is important to note about LSU, I was at that Alabama game last November, not very long ago. It's not like they've completely changed over the roster. Their offensive line got absolutely mauled, and they got shut out. Quinnen Williams had a field day. Their offensive line against Florida could not have played better, and, and you know, for all the attention on Burrow and the receivers, their running backs really had a great game that night as well. So now the flip side of all this, I think it's pretty clear six games into the season that this is not a vintage LSU defense. We first saw that against Texas, a little bit against Vandy even, who is terrible. And then the other night, I mean, credit to Dan Mullen. He is a good offensive coach. He has taken Kyle Trask, who, as every single TV broadcaster makes sure to mention, did not start in high school. And, uh, you know, they, they, they scored four touchdowns by early in the third quarter. They had three 75-yard drives. And then it, it was almost going to be 35, and then uh, obviously the huge Derek Stingley interception in the end zone or at the goal line. So that was not a great performance by LSU's defense, and that gave me a little bit of pause about should I really move LSU to number one because I know they've got this pretty glaring weakness as well. But here's the thing. Ohio State might too. I have no idea. They haven't played an offense that can test them. They played Nebraska and Michigan State. Uh, teams that are not good on offense. I don't think that's the case. I think they have a really good defense. But the reason we know this is about LSU, why that defense has been exposed, is because they've played really good teams. And Ohio State and, and a couple others have not. So um, do you think, because you know the comments to that top 10 were immediately, so, this, so you're saying LSU is going to beat Alabama. No, I'm not necessarily saying that. Do you think a top 10 or whatever, top 25 should be predictive or reflective? Reflective. I think reflective. I think it should be reflective. Yeah. yeah. I think because all this, you know, and then you get some of these, some of this kind of moronic, well, let's let Vegas, the Vegas handicappers. Decide. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, then what happened on the field didn't matter. If, if, so, was, if yes, we go solely by Vegas, we just skip ahead to the Alabama-Clemson championship game. Cause, right. uh, if that, you go that, solely by Vegas, then you're, Vegas is going to pick Georgia to beat South Carolina again. And, and you can't just dismiss what happened. Uh, I have a question for you. This, this, I thought about this uh, yesterday at one point. Um, you and I both did a ranking our top 25 head coaches looking back. And I didn't feel like I—and look, I probably talked to Ed Ogeron more than anybody in the media. I did not have him in there. If we did this now, where would you rank him? I mean, because if you look since—and I did crunch some numbers on this—since 2016, I'm going to give you the list of active Power 5 head coaches who have a better winning percentage than he does. It's a short list. 
Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, James Franklin, Paul Christ, and that's it. You could put Lincoln Riley in there, but he's only been coaching three years. So that's the list. Not a lot of other guys. Now, I'm not saying that it's as easy to win in uh, Iowa City or in Ames, Iowa or in Winston-Salem. But again, there's a lot of coaches who have big, big jobs who haven't won anywhere near this, including, you know, we're going to talk more about Georgia in a second. I mean, Kirby Smart, where did you have him in the top 10? See, that's where I thought you were heading into this. And you said when you brought up the coaches list, because you texted me something about Kirby Smart's ranking. Ogeron would definitely be in there. I don't know where. Uh, And one of the reasons to me would be he has done something that not a lot of head coaches are willing to do, and that's adapt. Uh, he, he, even from, I mean, it didn't even just start with Joe Brady from the time he took that job, he made it clear. I want to run a wide open offense. It just didn't, he didn't hire the right guys for Matt Cavanaugh, for whatever reason that didn't work out. Now he's found his guy. Uh, it's what a lot of coaches try to do, but oftentimes they're too stuck in their ways or maybe they're, 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 uh, open to it at first, but then they, they clamp down. Uh, this this to me is the definition of good coaching. He figured out what was the best fit or the best system for his talent. Now, before we go handing him the Bobby Dodd Coach of the Year award, I think he will ultimately be judged by whether he finally beats Alabama, whether he can, you know, the LSU has won SEC titles and national titles in its recent history. If they were to slip up a couple times and go 10-2, and two, I don't think they're going to be necessarily – that thrilled about that so let's see how he finishes out the season but when you brought up the coaching list yes I thought it was going to be about Kirby Smart relative to Lincoln Riley because <laughs> in well you texted it you so you you bring up the observation yeah so uh, I remember this where it was and they've coached roughly around the same time and look uh, when it was in the Rose Bowl that Oklahoma ended up losing in overtime to Kirby Smart's team I don't know how many people, if there is, you have to be the most diehard Georgia fan, I think, if you think that he's a better coach right now than what we've seen from Lincoln Riley, who I think is like 30 and four since he's taken over that program and had a profound impact there. And they, they keep, they feel like they keep getting better. Whereas the stuff I would say with Kirby Smart, and I'm not saying he's not a good, he's not a good coach at all, but he's, he is loaded up on five stars, but you start to start to look at it. You know, I think a lot of people are, are taken as, wow, they they went toe-to-toe with Alabama. They didn't win, but that is what I feel like a lot of people are hanging their hats on here and how well he's recruited. Whereas I remember last year, they went into Baton Rouge and got blown out of the stadium. They lost by 20 points. And to see it the other day where they're playing, they're at home against a, a really mediocre South Carolina team that wasn't even 500 coming in there. South Carolina is down to their third-string quarterback, and they can't win that game. Now, credit to Will Muschamp. They found a way to do it. But does that make you rethink a little? You had Kirby, what, maybe sixth or fifth on your, your list? Well, the thing at the time was the, the comments I got from Georgia fans about, remember, I think I had them top five. Uh and then somehow that wasn't good enough. And you and, and it was almost like, well, wait a minute. He hasn't already won the national title. He hasn't already done the kind of things that I think 
you guys are just assuming at this point are going to happen. That's why I think this this game this past weekend was so demoralizing. Yeah, you could spin it and say, uh, technically all their goals are still in front of them, right? Turn around, be Florida, win out, go to the SEC title game. If you win that, you're going to the playoff, just like they had hoped before the season. But, uh, but that game uh, was everything that... Every reservation that people have had about Kirby Smart to this point was confirmed in that game. Um, and I think we can concede, right? Like, yeah, that list we, is, is a very simple, generalized, who's the best coach? But there's a lot of things that go into being a good college football coach. I think Kirby is an excellent CEO. I think he has done a lot of things that kind of modernized that program from Mark Rick's time to now. Obviously, a lot of it modeled after Saban. He is clearly a fantastic recruiter. He's just hoarding all these five stars. But he gets into these games when they're actually close, because they do have a lot of blowouts, and he makes some of the most baffling decisions, whether it was the fake punt against Alabama last year or the um, almost blowing that Notre Dame game uh, with some of his management at the end of that, that game. So you were watching this game. What went through your mind when he called a timeout on fourth and one when it was clear that South Carolina was about to let the play clock run out? Yeah, I feel like Georgia fans, and you and I both know plenty of them, are probably sitting there, and, and for a long time, Mike Bobo was basically the scorn for them, and there was so much frustration. I can only imagine how many, how many remotes were thrown at TVs at that point. It was just... Because there was a couple of things that late in the game, nothing nothing probably sets fans and, and sports writers off more than questionable clock management. And I think we're not, you know, we're not, we're, we're not operating, they're not operating in a vacuum, but you see these things like, oh my goodness, you know? And when stuff like that happens, you feel like eventually it's gonna come back to bite you. And it, it certainly, in these cases, it almost always has. And, you know, go, go big picture on this, like it's been my belief that with the way Kirby has recruited and also with the the way the SEC sets up, if I'm a Georgia fan and they don't win a national title this year or next year, and they're, right now their odds to win a national title took, probably took a big hit after that loss because they have no more margin for error, I'd be really, really disappointed and surprised because everything felt like it's been trending in that direction but now I think you gotta you have to question it a little bit and saying I don't know maybe this is just not going to go quite the way we we thought it was just because all the five stars were rolling in well I think that they've they've built a program now where they have more talent than almost everybody they play so they're going to win a lot of games every year but to actually take that next step and win a national championship which is what they want there uh, first one since 1980 there's a lot that goes into that, and and these kind of moments. Look, they didn't lose the game on those decisions the other day. They still had a chance after South Carolina kicked a field goal in double overtime to go down and tie or win the game, right? So it's not like he cost his team the game with those decisions. Uh, but it just that and the fake punt and several other things it doesn't give you a lot of confidence that this is a guy who could coach a team to that national championship. And they came as close as possible two years ago. Um, but it just makes you lose a, it makes it puts a little bit of doubt in your mind. Now I can come up with a a, um, a a parallel for you. I feel like sometimes 
we've been covering the sport so long that whenever something happens, I can kind of just dig into my memory bank and go, oh, that reminds me of this. And maybe that dates me. I don't know. Remember when Mac Brown couldn't beat Bob Stoops and uh, was Mr. February because he would always sign these, you know, number one, number two recruiting class and and end up in the Holiday Bowl. And I, it's hard to imagine this now because everybody, nobody has any patience. But he, it took him seven years to actually go to a BCS Bowl. Like they would win 10, 11 games, but they'd lose to Oklahoma and one other team and go to the Holiday Bowl or the Cotton Bowl. It wasn't until Vince Young became Vince Young that they went to the Rose Bowl and then they won the national title the next year. Feels a little, I mean, Kirby already has done more than, than Mac. He already went to the national, won an SEC and went to the national title game in week two in the second year. But I just remember at the time, I mean, Texas fans had no faith in him. Greg Davis was the, you know, the, the, the object of scorn. This guy, he can, re- yeah, this he was their Bobo. This guy can recruit, but then he can't coach on Saturdays. So I don't want to, throw in the towel on him just yet um coaches grow they get better um but but you know how can your confidence not be shaken after that and we're and so far we've only really talked about the micro and not the the larger thing of how did they lose to a 24 point underdog well the biggest question coming into the season for georgia really the only question i thought you lost their top four receivers it shows i mean they they, nobody could get open against South Carolina. That's how Jake Fromm ends up throwing three interceptions. Also, their offensive line, which people are talking about as the best offensive line in the country coming this season, is is definitely not. Um, they got all those great running backs, and they can't run the ball consistently. Uh, do you think they will turn this thing around, beat Florida, have the kind of season we thought, or are they going to lose a couple more? No. I, I, you know, I think somewhere in the middle. I think they probably will beat Florida, but I think they will lose in the SEC title game. And if you do that, you're not going to the playoff because I just don't think the resume is going to carry enough weight. It's an, they have a nice win over Notre Dame. And if they beat Florida, and that's a big if, then they would have that. But I just don't think – it wasn't like they got embarrassed by South Carolina. It wasn't like one of these Ohio State – plays Purdue and gets blown out of the building or plays Iowa where it's you know I think you mentioned this on the on the podcast a week or two ago and I I think it's a good point about when the playoff committee gets gets irked it's not just who you lose to it's if you get blown out in an embarrassing loss and this wasn't that but still I just don't think they have any margin for error for some reason I, I I think they'll beat Florida at this point but who knows what kind of shape both of those teams will be in when they when they square off as far as that, I, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, seeing this was like, woof. This is just because it, this South Carolina was probably better than their record, but South Carolina is not that good. And again, they were playing with their third string quarterback. That's the part that's just like just a jolt to me. On that. well, they played the entire second half in overtime with one hand tied there behind their back, basically. Like there was no way they were gonna do anything on offense with him in there. So it was just, can Georgia score? Can they? Just get one touchdown at the end of regulation, and they couldn't do it. So um, that's on that's on Georgia and their offense, and um, the inability to you know, for all those five stars. I mean, Demetrius Robertson uh, Robertson was a five star, but who has never quite lived up to that at receiver. He did. You know, the guy who's been their best receiver so far uh, was Lawrence Cager, the the Miami grad transfer. He had a big game against Notre Dame. He got hurt, I think, early in the second half. So, um, again, 
shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. So that was that was the most significant development of the weekend in terms of wow, we finally had a top five team lose. Um, but obviously, Red River was the the showcase game or one of the two showcase games, and I thought Oklahoma. Um, it wasn't so much that they won; they were favored to win, but the way they did it. After we just talked about the Joe Brady effect, how about the Alex Grinch effect? How about taking one of the worst defenses in the country last season, and a year later you're playing Sam Ellinger in Texas, and you get nine sacks, and you hold him to one of to to one of his lowest passing performances of his career there, and despite Jalen Hurts having two red zone turnovers that that you know might if he hasn't had them they probably win it going away, but. Uh, they needed their defense to win the game for it or help them win the game, and it did. And, you know, that was their big question coming into the season. So now you've got a prolific offense. And I don't want to yet say, like, oh, they're a premier defense, but they're definitely a lot better than they were last year. I agree. They are. He's really changed the mindset, and I think Grinch will keep doing that. And, look, their their front seven got very active. Kenneth Murray was all over the place. Neville Gallimore, who's an old freaks list guy and is, has uh, – very talented, but production hasn't always been there. But they cut them loose and just let them guys go go play. And when I talked to Grinch, one of the things he really stressed is to get them to believe that you can't be one one allowing one big play is not going to break you. And so I think that's critical. And I don't think this is a case of okay, we're going to say all of a sudden now this is an elite defense. I mean, as you said, I mean they're 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 definitely improved, but I think this is the kind of thing where they're going to have to keep proving it. And I think Alex Grinch knows that probably better than anybody. Um, and I, I I definitely felt like there was a gap between them and Texas right now. And I thought, I was surprised how much they bottled up Texas as, as well as they did. I mean, it was a rough go for Tom Herman's offense. I thought they would have been crisper and they weren't. And that's a lot of, a lot of credit to Alex Grinch for that and those players who, who have bought in. Uh, can we transition to, we're talking improved defenses. I know you touched on this a minute ago, but uh, with Oregon's defense, how much have you paid attention and and where do you think the Pac-12 is with having a having a, an outside shot at least to get in the playoff? You've seen one of the most improved defenses up close uh, two weeks in a row and seeing is believing. I mean, Oregon... Uh, that game against Colorado the other night, now, is Colorado all that great? Probably not. But I didn't expect them to beat them, what was it, 45-3? to three? Yeah, and look, where Colorado is not good is on defense. They're really banged up, and they do not have a lot of talent, especially in the secondary or on the D-line. The part where Colorado has some guys is their receiving court is really good, led by LaVisca and KD Nixon and, and Tony Brown. They have players, and when Steven Montez is hot, He's got a big arm, and he's played a lot of football. But they got they went after him, and it was bad. Montez and Lavisca got got. You could tell he was frustrated, and I think Andy Avalos, who did a nice job at Boise, has really fit in well there. And they keep taking the next step, and they got players. When you look at them, um, they and I remember talking pregame to one of the. Colorado staffers who spent a lot of time in the SEC and he kind of was eyeballing them. He was like, they look like an SEC team and they do. They may, they may not quite have the numbers of an elite SEC team, but Javon Holland 
is a big time defensive back. He would start almost anywhere, and and you see it with the big D line and linebackers who can run. It's impressive. Now I don't know if they're gonna make it without a hiccup somewhere the rest of the way, but they are getting a lot better as the year goes on. And I, I mean, I do think they deserve a lot of credit for the growth that that group has made. I mean, I was watching. And I felt bad for you because I knew everybody in America was going to turn off their TV uh, very soon because it was a close game early, and Colorado was driving for a chance to, what, make it 17-10? And then uh, interception all sets up a touchdown. The other They had four straight – Colorado had four straight drives where, um, where Oregon intercepted them, and some of them were just insane athletic play. I mean, they were deflected passes, but Oregon was the one deflecting them. So – I mean, Oregon was the one making that happen. It wasn't like one of those uh, flukish deflections off your own receiver's helmet or something. So um, that was a fast athletic defense. Now, they're playing at Washington this weekend, and Washington has two losses, and they're probably not as good as they have been the last few years. But that's a big rivalry game that Washington really needs to— if they lose that game, they're done. They're not going to contend for the Pac-12 this year. Um, If Oregon wins, they basically— I mean, they all but clinched the division at that point. They'll be at least two games up on everybody and, and three, obviously, on Washington. Um, so I think that's going to be a really tough game for Oregon. And then the other thing I would say is, as good as Oregon's defense is, so is Utah's. So I think we're heading toward a, probably an Oregon-Utah Pac-12 title game. And whether or not Oregon wins this weekend, I'm kind of leaning toward picking the Huskies at home, but that wouldn't necessarily affect the standings all that much. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, you said talking about Pac-12 playoff team. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's realistic. And I also don't know that I'm sure who's going to win it. I mean, are you saying Oregon's definitely going to win it? I'm not saying they're definitely going to win it. I like their chances after seeing them more and more. Their offensive line is is very talented. I think now they hurt. I mean, J- Jacob Breland's one of the better tight ends. He has really been a go-to guy for them. And then he got hurt early in the game left the field on crutches. He's out for the rest of the season. They're going to miss him. Now, they, just around the same time, they got three of their most talented receivers healthy. And so those guys are going to transition in. And Micah Pittman, I think, is a real stud. And I think he'll help them. But I don't know. I mean, I right now, I would pick them. But it's I don't feel that confident that they're going to go win in Seattle or that they, can, that they would beat Utah definitely in the title game. But... They're getting better, and you see some of that, some of that athleticism, and that physicality is really translating. It's just, you know, I don't know if they can be that consistent. That's the part that I'm a little skeptical of, just because we've seen it from other teams. And I think, I think the, the now the schedule gets rough. They've had it; they're relatively easy. I mean, Cal has a good defense, but they got them without Garbers at quarterback. They got them with Devon Modster, and and that was a difference. And so, so uh, keep an eye on the Ducks. They, it won't be boring, I'll say that. All right, Bruce, let's get to our guest. Trent Dilfer, Super Bowl winning quarterback. Also, the head coach of the Elite 11 has been in that role for a long time, so nobody has seen and worked with more of these quarterbacks that now we watch on Saturdays than Trent. He is also now the head coach at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville. Trent, thanks for joining us on The Audible today. Always fun to be with you, Bruce. I appreciate it. Um, so, look, you guys were the first ones to really, I think, have a grasp on just how special Justin Fields 
really was. I remember being out at, at Elite 11 a few years ago, and we knew he was a good baseball player. We knew he was at a big arm, and he was a big athletic kid. What was it you guys really noticed that kind of wowed you back then? Well, I think what wowed you was the dominance in two sports, obviously baseball and football, the measurables, um, the height, weight, speed, um, arm talent, all that stuff. But then as you got to know him, and I, I wouldn't say we knew this right away. I think we grew to learn this and understand this about Justin was his presence, uh, just the kind of presence that he holds with coaches, with um, players, uh, any environment he's around. He's kind of the thermostat. He's not loud. He's not um, charismatic, but everybody kind of draws into him and and uh, follows his beat. Um, and then the precision for which he can play. I think people saw him, and I did at first too, it was just a big physical uh, athlete that could throw the ball hard. And as I spent time with him and saw him learn and grow and be coach, you saw that he can play with a high level of precision. He can process really, really well. Um, he understands the passing game. He understands protections. Um, he understands a lot of the nuance of quarterbacking that a lot of times great athletes don't have to understand because they can just be the biggest, baddest dude on the block. And and uh, Justin has an awareness of those things and a, and a thirst to, to know more about it. So he's really the complete package uh, at every level. Um, I've heard it said this way, game knows game. And uh, everybody that has game knows that he has game, and that's why they kind of gravitate towards him. Well, let me ask you this. So I, at your deal with Elite 11, you guys throw some NFL concept at these guys. It's not just, hey, who can throw it the farthest or, or a lot of seven-on-seven seven stuff. There's a lot of nuanced things you're trying to get them to learn. So as you've watched him on Saturdays now, certainly he started out at Georgia, and now he goes to work with Ryan Day taken over for Dwayne Haskins, who had a really big year there. What have you seen from him as he's made that transition? Well, one, it's a perfect marriage, right? I think Ryan's offense is um, um, it's big enough, if that's the right word, to accommodate a lot of different skill sets. Um, if you want to go straight NFL passing game and change protections and you know, activate defenders and do all the kind of highly sophisticated stuff. Ryan knows how to do that. If you want to go straight high school and just play tempo and isolate bad defenders, he can do that. Uh, and you can do a hybrid of it. And, and I think Justin has the ability from a skill set standpoint, both physically and mentally, to do all of it. Uh, so it's a perfect marriage for Ryan because he can do all the stuff he did with Dwayne. Uh, he can do all the stuff he's done with running quarterbacks. Uh, he, can in, he can try new stuff. Um, and it's just going to be the perfect marriage of, of coach, offensive, you know, mind and quarterback. What I've seen is a quarterback that's been really wise with the football. Uh, he's made his splash plays with his legs and his feet, but he's made really good decisions. Um, and ultimately, you're going to be judged by the NFL by the quality of your decisions. And, and Justin's made really, really good ones. I think you're always going to have the ability uh, to be explosive with Justin as a quarterback in the run game and the pass game. Uh, he's going to create space for you with your traditional run game. Uh, and because he's got a really big throw catalog, there's a lot of stuff you can do uh, in the passing game. You're not just reduced to RPOs or perimeter isolation throws. Like They're running high-level concepts like we do at Elite 11 where you're you know, working through full progressions or you're, you're handling a protection, a hot read, and then working into progressions. 
Um, there's a lot of cool stuff they're doing with their offense, and Justin's executing at a really, really high level, which doesn't surprise me. Trent, a guy that's been one of, if not the biggest stories in college football this year is Jalen Hurts making the move from Alabama to Oklahoma. And I think you've got a pretty unique perspective on him because you go all the way back to when he was a, a, in high school and a finalist, and he gets to Alabama in those first couple of years. People are saying, well, he's a great runner, but he's not a great passer. Now he's at Oklahoma doing both. Take us through kind of how you think he got from, from where he was in 2015 to now. Well, and he's been a counselor for us for a couple of years at Elite 11. You know, I have all the kids in college football um, over the past years, all the Elite 11 kids. I think the one I've grown to admire the most, his competitive temperament, his soul, uh, his leadership, um, is Jalen. Um, he's a guy that is truly, truly authentic. Uh, he's a team-first guy. Um, he had this incredible freshman year. Well, number one, he's grown so much as a player and as a person, and we can get into that. But first, just the substantive part of him as a leader, like what he went through at Alabama to have the great freshman there and to lose his job to Tua, to be a great teammate, um, to come back as an Elite 11 counselor that year with Tua, the two of them together, uh, and share with our kids what that experience was like and what it means to be team first. Um, how he still had massive impact at the University of Alabama as a teammate, as a person on that campus, and now to go to Oklahoma as a, as a refined player, but I think also a refined human. I mean, talking to him this summer, he was so laser-focused on what he was going to bring to Oklahoma. He was not caught up in the Baker and Kyler stuff. He was not caught up in trying to be the quarterback that those guys were. He was he was completely focused on being the best teammate he could be, to go there and to compete, to go there and to, to take that team to a place they hadn't been before. And um, you're seeing it come out on Saturdays. Yeah, we could talk about how explosive a runner he, uh, that he is and how he's added another power running game dimension to that offense. He's throwing the ball really well. His big play um, – kind of sizzle reel is off the off the charts but I think more what you're seeing when you watch Oklahoma is just the energy he brings to that team and the belief he brings to that team and I think they're actually better than they've been the last two years and I think it's not because their quarterback's necessarily a better player um, but he is a dynamic winner and leader. From his personality you know him I remember being in the room when he spoke when you're talking about him being a counselor and Tua's in the room. And I remember sitting like probably a few feet behind Tua and he's kind of nodding his head when he's seeing Jalen kind of explain himself. And uh, unlike most of the guys there, I don't see him as a kid, you know, like in your head, you think, oh, college kid. It's almost like you default to saying it. With him, even when he was 19, he carried himself like he was a grown man. There was a, there was a, a I don't know if it's a seriousness, but there was something there, a substantive piece of it. But just being around him, we did his UCLA game, and I talked to him earlier in the week. There is a burning desire there. It's very close to the surface with him about how competitive he is. How, how do you think he, he manages to walk that fine line where he's being driven in it, but yet he's not kind of popping off in a way where he's going to talk about it in a certain way? Like he's, I mean, he has a, a degree in public relations, and he... I think he has a real feel for that, but it's an interesting dynamic that he is the transfer guy and how he has managed this and how he's taken it and driving him. Well, I think two things. I think number one, a word we probably don't use enough is wisdom. I think he has a lot of wisdom. Football wisdom, life wisdom, 
um, emotional wisdom. He just is a very wise old soul for his age. Uh, I think the other thing is he's a pro. Like you, you mentioned, he's a pro with the media. He knows he's very tactical with what he's doing. Uh, he's a pro when it comes to his work ethic and his preparation. Uh, he's a pro with how he interacts uh, with his teammates and coaches. Um, he gets he gets it at a different level than most people his age. I, I even go back to when he was in high school, um, Elite 11 participant, and he didn't make the finals, but even how he handled that. Um, he was definitely one of the best 11 football players, we thought, at that time at the Elite 11, but he just wasn't refined enough as a passer where we felt he could go to the opening and thrive, and, and he understood that. And I remember talking to him his freshman year in Alabama, and he was still working on um, – he was professional enough in his approach to take constructive criticism and, and build from it and make sure he was going to become a, a better passer because he knew that would be his ticket to long-term success. So there's just a, like I said, there's a wisdom um, to him and a professionalism to him that not many um, kids his age have. Trent, another guy you know well is Jake Fromm. And we mentioned Justin Fields earlier. I think the two of them are going to be linked together uh, for a while going forward. And unfortunately, we happen to be catching you right after Jake had a really rough game against uh, South Carolina. And then, of course, when that happens, everybody says, oh, don't, don't they wish they still had Justin Fields? But Jake has obviously had a lot of success there, and surpri- maybe surprisingly so to people coming out of the recruiting scene. You know, Why do you think it is that maybe he has been such a good fit for Georgia where at well at the same time we can concede that Justin is probably the right guy at Ohio State. Yeah, I mean they're different quarterbacks. I never loved the fit of Justin at Georgia. Um, that's just my personal opinion. We we stay out of that part of it. Keep our opinions to ourselves um, at Elite Eleven. But uh, I never thought that was a great fit, um, mainly because Jake was there and, and Jake again um, is a unique person. He, he's a very gifted passer. He's got you know, what I call NFL passing traits. He anticipates, he throws guys open. Um, He's got high-level quarterback eyes. He sees, you know, boundary to boundary, doesn't just see isolations and either-or matchups. He changes the tempo on the ball. He handles protections. He's a dynamic leader. I mean, Jake does a lot. This is why the scouts love Jake so much, because he he looks the part of an NFL passer. Um, I think you take Saturday as a grain of salt. He had a couple of bad breaks in that game, too. I wouldn't put that whole thing on Jake Fromm um, in their loss to South Carolina. He had some bad bounces of the ball as well. Um, but I think it's interesting, and I don't know if we're going to talk about Tua, but you know, one thing over the 10 years of doing the Elite 11 thing that we've really noticed and tried to identify at a young age is which guys kind of have this makeup, call it a competitive temperament, um, call it personality traits, whatever you want, however you want to package it, but this makeup that gives them something special that allows them to be more than just they of what they are physically. And uh, you look at Tui, you look at Jake, you look at Justin, you look at Jalen, and all four of them um, stand out in the list of the 10 years of guys who are kind of the most stuff the most extra stuff, the, the greatest competitive temperaments, the most natural leadership qualities, the ability to bring people together, the ability to get the most from the least and the best from the best, the ability to overcome adversity, whatever all these cliches that we talk about that are actually true, um, 
these are the four guys that probably at the top of the list. I'd add Trevor Lawrence into that. I mean, these guys have something more than their talent. We always want to minimize it to arm talent or, you know, you know, test scores or size or whatever it is. And, and usually what makes them transformational players is, is the soulful part of their game. And, and I think all of them have that. And, and Jake will bounce back just fine from this last game because he's unique in, in those areas. Okay, you brought up Tua. We're seeing him do things that putting up numbers, putting up touchdown interception ratios that, frankly, we've never seen. Obviously, he's playing with a, just a tremendous set of receivers. Um, what is uh, what's the what's the ceiling here? Is there a ceiling? Like, what what's the next step for Tua in his development? I, you know, I think with and I don't want to make this a Tua thing. Tua is obviously, and I've said this since day one, he's the most unique quarterback prospect I've ever been around. Uh, and I go back to working out with Aaron Rodgers when he was at Cal and, you know, Aaron and I had a connection through Jeff Tedford and I worked out in the off season with, with him and Aaron was even close, not even in the same conversation as talented as Tua is at this stage. Um, Tua can do things that Aaron couldn't dream of doing at that age. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be better than Aaron Rodgers. I think that people did make that giant leap. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying at this point of their development, Tua does things I've never seen anybody be able to do. Um, whether that's from how twitchy he can play the game, uh, from his release to the way the ball comes off his hands, to his throw catalog, um, to his ability to create space uh, in the pocket, um, to his poise. I mean, I can go on and on and on. He's simply the most unique prospect I've ever uh, been around. Uh, his ability to learn. I think that's something that people don't give to enough credit for is he's a gifted, gifted learner. I mean, he can change after one rep. He learns something after one rep. Um, he's a guy that um, the, the sky is the limit because of those things. Now, what does he need to work on? Everything. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, when he's going to play against Tom Brady next year, um, you know, you got to work on everything. There's, you're always evolving. You're always developing. You're always learning new things. Uh, I think the college game, as much as there is Saturday offense on Sundays, the pro game is still a lot different. There's still a lot more you have to handle at the line of scrimmage. There's a lot more nuance to the looks you're seeing and how you digest those looks and the decisions you make from those looks. So it's just going to be a continued evolution of the game mentally for him. I do think he needs to take less risk with the ball. I've always said that to him. Every time we've ever talked, I've told him, you still have a little bit too much gunslinger in you. Uh, he tries to make a play on every play. I think he'll learn that over time. That no matter He'll make a ton of plays, and you'll see him do Patrick Mahomes, Brett Favre, Dan Marino, John Elway type things. But to win championship after championship after championship, and I'm sure Nick is telling him this, it's about the boring, monotonous things where you turn down those Superman plays and do the, take, the, take the boring play instead. Um, I think the more he learns that as a player, as he goes to the next level, the better he'll be. All right, Trent, I want to transition to where you are now. Uh, I had worked with you for a while, and then we've seen you on TV. We've seen you certainly as a player in the NFL. And you take over a program in Nashville, Tennessee, Lipscomb Academy that had won, I believe this is right, three, three games over the previous two years. 
and you jump in there now as a head coach. What has what has surprised you, if anything, about now that you're in it as a head coach that maybe you could never have realized about coaching high school kids in this day and age? <laughs> we stop. We start with a softball, Bruce. Um, well, number one, I, I I think that contextually, I had retired. I had kind of, you know faded off in the sunset, watched my girls play volleyball, and I realized that you're not supposed to retire at 47. I really lacked purpose. I really felt like I wasn't having an impact. I felt like I had a lot to give um, and wasn't giving it outside my family. Um, I, I had turned down the NFL and the college opportunities because I didn't want to hijack my family. Um, and, you know, with daughters, if I had boys, I would have been coaching a long time ago. Um, but with daughters, I wanted to, you know, celebrate their careers and be around them and, and be able to take them to school and make them lunch and yada, yada, yada. This high school fit was the perfect opportunity to kind of give everything that so many people have given me over the years. And, and people now in the football space kind of take ownership for how much they know. Here's the next guru, and here's what he knows, and this guy's gifted, and here's what he can give. And they forget that all they have has been given to them by somebody else. Lincoln Riley didn't wake up and become a football guru, right? Many, many people gave him a lot of stuff over the years, and I've been given a lot. I've played for incredible coaches, Hall of Fame-level coaches. I've had incredible position coaches. I've had incredible experiences in the game of football. I've had incredible uh, leadership development guys mentor me. I've been around the best and the John Gorns, the Michael Gervais. Uh, I've had life experience losing a son and – raising a family and mentoring young people and, and life has given me so much. I feel like this was the perfect Avenue to give it back. And uh, that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create a human development program. My mass is a high school football team and uh, we're doing it. Um, there's bumps in the road. It's challenging. There's a, to answer your question more specifically, there's a lot of monotonous things I didn't expect, but they're important because they impact kids um, and, and I think the more I get to know where a teenage boy is in life right now, the more I appreciate the gravity of this job. Um, because of the world we live in, because of the uh, exposure to so many bad things um, that you know, can sit on your phone and these kids are exposed to, because of all the distractions, because of the pressures of life, because of the messaging, uh, these kids are, are going through a lot, and I think they need to be surrounded by a bunch of men um, and women, we have a lot of female coaches too, that are, we're going to pour into them. And I've tried to develop the best high school staff in the country to pour into these boys and, and, uh, give them everything we can possibly give them in every walk of life. And in doing that, try to make them better football players and win football games. And, and it's been truly, I can say this without any hesitation outside of raising a family, being married for 26 years has been the most rewarding and challenging thing I've ever done. I'm only eight months into it. I got a ton to learn. Um, but at this point, I'm exhausted and exhilarated all at the same time. That's very cool. Uh, well, we appreciate you, you joining us today on the Audible and dropping a ton of insight, especially on, as I said, you, you've had more perspective on all these quarterbacks than anybody I know. And I think our listeners heard that today. So it's been uh, it's been fun to reconnect with you. And can I leave yes. you with a little note that our friend Joey dropped on me today, and I'll give him all the credit. And I, it just blew my mind. Think of the crossroads of these quarterback transfers this year. 
and maybe you guys have talked about this. The first I've kind of thought through this after Joey handed it to me. You know, Jalen, everything he's doing has his eyes on playing Alabama in the college football playoffs. But then you go to Joe Burrow, and everything he's doing, his eyes are being able to play Ohio State in the college football playoff. Oh, yeah, Justin Fields at Ohio State, all his eyes, all he's thinking about is being able to play Georgia in the college football playoff if they can bounce back. I think there's an amazing storyline here that Joey's pointed out to me on these kind of where these quarterback transfers, all the success they're having, but really what's in the back of their mind. When they lay in bed at night and they look at their ceiling and the lights are off and they're alone with their thoughts, you know that is all they're thinking about, that they're motivated every single day to get up and give their best because there's got to be something deep in their soul where they want revenge on those teams. Yeah, I mean, look, they were talking about ultimate level competitors. I mean, you feel that with with Jalen Hurts. You see it with Joe Burrow. And I think with Justin Fields, you know, in that position as well. So, I mean, look, that is that is a huge subplot to not just the season, but the Heisman race and everything else with it. So, um, again, it, it, I'd encourage people to follow you on social media. It's, it's at Dilfer Dimes, D-I-L-F-E-R-S, Dimes. And uh, Trent, best of luck on the rest of the season at Lipscomb. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. And we appreciate Trent Dilfer for joining us on the Audible today. Stu, more good games this weekend, which we will break down in a couple days in our Audible Extra. Any other things we should be telling our listeners? Well, we didn't get to any mailbag questions this week. We ran out of time, so we will definitely hit them on our Thursday episode, the Audible Extra. That's on the Athletics app. Um, we will also be doing some picks on that episode. And uh, Bruce, I should probably talk to you at some point this week about what to, all the fun things you can do in Evanston this weekend before you go cover the um, the very, very, very lopsided game that is going to be Ohio State-Northwestern. Just tell me you're going to be tuned in to FS1s, too. I will be tuned in for as long as I can stomach it. Um, I will at least make it to the halftime interview. I'll, I'll definitely want to see your halftime interview, uh, which will pres- – don't you always interview the winning coach, uh, the lead, the coach who's in the lead first? Yeah, but that's not on camera. It's usually coming out of halftime where we, we do our on camera. So. Oh, so I got to stick it through the halftime show. You got to stick through the halftime. All right. I'll do my best. We'll see you guys next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review us. It helps get the word out. By the way, you can also find the Audible now on The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme music is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can find their music on Spotify, wherever you get your favorite music from. Follow me, Stu, on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to The Athletic. You can try it for free for seven days at theathletic.com slash free trial. Talk about it for years